This is Communio Sanctorum, the history of the Christian Church, Season 2. This is the 10th episode in the ongoing epic saga of the Chinese Marco Polo known as Raban Sama. Realizing that he couldn't get anything done in Rome since there was no pope, and that the dozen cardinals charged with the task of selecting him were competing for the post, Sama decided to take his request for a military alliance between Christian Europe and Mongol Persia against the Muslim Mamluks in the Middle East directly to the kings of France and England. Leaving Rome, he stopped in Genoa on his way north. Since Genoa had for some years maintained a thriving trade with the Ilkhanate, and that is, of course, the Mongols in Persia, Sama had every reason to expect a warm welcome, and he wasn't disappointed. It didn't hurt that one of the interpreters who had accompanied him from Persia was a native-born Genoese merchant. Genoa was right at the height of its prosperity when Sama visited, boasting a population of 70,000, one of the largest in Europe. Its merchants were savvy negotiators who had been able to arrange deals not only around the Mediterranean, but reaching into the Far East. While other Italian city-states like Naples and Venice set up lucrative trade routes with select partners, Genoa was able to walk a tightrope of diplomacy across dozens of partners who were otherwise in conflict with each other. Because of their wide-ranging connections, many realms of thought and practice combined to influence the intellectual life of Genoa. It was a truly cosmopolitan city whose routine wasn't knocked off kilter by the arrival of an embassy from the Far East. While the commerce of Genoa was well established, its government was another matter. Genoa seemed unable to find a political system that satisfied the city's needs for longer than a decade. At the time of Sama's visit, the city's ruler was called a captain of the people, or captain of the citizens. He rallied the population of Genoa to officially welcome Sama's party. Sama was confused, not able to understand how such a large city wasn't ruled by a king, and knowing how far-reaching Genoa's trade was, Sama wondered if it might even have been better ruled by an emperor. Once settled into the accommodations made available to him, Sama plotted his next moves. If it had occurred to him to ask the Genovese to enter an alliance against the Mamluks, well, he quickly put it aside. The Genoese would not be drawn into a war with a force that dominated the entire eastern Mediterranean. In fact, forging treaties is what they were known for. And when they did go to war, it was with their rival Italian city-states, and all for the golden prize of increasing trade with everyone else. Genoa was, at that time, gearing up for a campaign against their major rival, Venice, which it would soon best. So after visiting the religious sites in and near Genoa, Sama once again packed up and headed north for France. Sama's hope of help from the French was keen. After all, King Louis IX, known to history as Saint Louis, had played a major role in two crusades to liberate the Middle East from the Muslim presence. But his son, Philip III, known as Philip the Bold, had been more concerned with securing his control of France and her neighbors. His son, Philip IV, known as Philip the Fair, and later as the Iron King, had only been on the throne for two years when Sama arrived in Paris. Barely 20 years of age, everyone wondered if he would reprise the career of his famous grandfather or his more mundane father. It seemed a most propitious time for the Raban's embassy. 
as, setting out on a new crusade to liberate the Holy Land from the Mamluks, would appeal to the energy and ambitions of a young ruler seeking to make his mark. Arriving at the French border in August of 1287, Salma's party was greeted by a large force sent by the king to escort him to Paris. They entered the city at the end of September to much pomp and circumstance. Salma was then ushered into palatial digs provided by King Philip, and it was now time for a break for the Chinese monk ambassador. The trip from Genoa to Paris took a month. While the journey was nowhere near as arduous as that which he had undertaken a decade before from China to Persia, well, he was now in his 60s, and the entire adventure had taken a toll on his aging body. He's been traveling for the past six months from Persia, across the Black Sea, to Constantinople, then Naples, Rome, Genoa, and now Paris. Keep in mind, there were no holiday Ramada or quality inns along the way. The caravanserais that they'd enjoyed earlier were far away in Asia. They now would have to overnight, either alongside the road or in small public houses, where the bedding was rarely changed. The quality of the food was often abysmal, because it was the only thing to be had by travelers. So, by the time that Sama arrived in Paris, he was exhausted and needed a rest. Philip recognized that and set aside three days for him to recoup. Then he sent a formal invitation for the Nestorian monk to attend an official audience with his majesty. When Sama arrived at court, Philip rose to greet him, an unusual gesture for a European monarch at that time. Guests at court were usually required to process a long path to the dais holding the throne, stopping at the foot of the stairs, then bowing and remaining thus in a posture of supplication until they were told to stand. The entire time, the king would remain seated. Rising to greet Sama was a surprising move on Philip's part because it signaled the court that the French king viewed Sama as an equal. Then it was down to business. Why, Philip asked, was Sama there? What did he want? Why had he come and who'd sent him? If Sama was surprised by the bluntness of the king's query, he quickly recovered and responded in kind. He told Philip that while originally sent on a religious pilgrimage, endorsed and sponsored by the great Kublai Khan in China, well, he'd been made the Mongol Ilkhanate in Persia's official envoy back to Kublai's court. But before returning to China to fulfill that task, he'd been given a special assignment. Travel west to the Christian rulers of Western Europe asking them for an alliance with the Ilkhanate against the Mamluks and the recovery of Jerusalem from Muslim control. Sama then handed Philip the letter and gifts from the Ilkhan Argun. These gifts were most likely the kind of things that would convey the seriousness of the embassy, but could be easily transported by individuals who were traveling light. Things like jewels, small packages of luxurious silk cloth, which, of course, was so highly prized by the elite of Western Europe. Sama reports that the French king was favorable towards the proposed alliance. Philip was moved by the Mongols' desire to free Jerusalem from Muslim hegemony, even though those Mongols weren't officially Christian. Philip remarked that Christian Europe ought to rise to the challenge presented by the Ilkhans. Rabban Sama was equally impressed by the king's devotion to the faith, and his interest in embarking on a new crusade. For the first time, Sama's mission to the West seemed to be bearing fruit. But Sama wasn't hip 
to the European politics which had shaped Philip's exuberant response. Philip was less interested in a crusade to recapture the Holy Land as he was in securing his control over the contested domains to his north. Ever since ascending the throne, he'd been in contention with England's King Edward I, who owed him fealty in Gascony. In the spring of 1286, Edward went to Paris to pay Philip honor as his suzerain. But Philip never bought this show of fealty. He had reason to distrust Edward, since England backed France's enemies in the contentious affairs in Aragon. Tensions between the two rulers grew until outright war broke out in 1294. Another trouble that Philip dealt with was a degenerating relationship with the Roman Church. Needing funds in his campaigns to secure the north, the French monarch confiscated the tithes that were destined for Rome. His nobles already struggled with the burdensome taxes that the crown had levied. The only place to secure the much-needed funds was the church. So, in an appeal to nationalism, Philip said that French gold and silver, well, it ought to stay in France, not be shipped off to Rome in the interests of the Pope, whose schemes were cast as contrary to French well-being. Now, all of this would later lead to a major rift that occurred between the French crown and the papacy, which is something that we covered in season one of Communio Sanctorum. While Philip's enthusiastic response to Sama's appeal was no doubt sincere, on further reflection, Philip realized that mounting a new crusade wasn't practical, at least not in the short term. Maybe after some movement had been made on his domestic fronts, well, then a crusade could be staged. On Salma's part, having achieved seeming success on the official phase of his embassy, he turned to his personal adventure, visiting the religious sites of Paris and its environs. Philip assigned him an escort, and off they went visiting churches and shrines, Sama once again focusing on relics rather than the marvelous architecture and art. The Rabban was stunned by the large number of students in Paris, which was one of the sites of the new centers of learning called universities. He reports that there were 30,000 students in the city. And that brings up a point of historical tension that it might be wise for us to skim the surface of. As many subscribers know, the value of numbers in reporting of history has been a contentious issue for a long time. The tension comes over the almost universal tendency of ancient historians to give big numbers while many modern historians are committed to reducing those numbers to a tenth of the original. And we see that here. Sama says that Paris had 30,000 students. Modern historians say that the city of that time had maybe 3,000. This assumed inflation of numbers by the ancients and chronicles of yore is just about universal among modern historians. Some wonder if that skepticism is valid. The fact that nearly all pre-modern accounts give much larger figures than modern historians allow is provocative. Recent archaeology has caused historians to revise their estimates of population upwards in some cases, and upwards significantly. It'll be interesting for those of us who are historically interested to watch what happens in the realm of statistics over the next few years as researchers review past assumptions in light of new evidence. Since I tend to give the ancients more credit for veracity, I suspect that we're going to see a revising of the numbers upward and upward dramatically. The University of Paris's primary course of study was theology, 
But the school quickly branched out into other areas, including law, medicine, philosophy, rhetoric, and math. The pursuit of these subjects was boosted by a renewal of interest in the recently published works of Aristotle. As a self-taught scholar who had studied everything that he could get his hands on back in China, Sama was quite impressed with Paris's schools. Sama's chronicle relates his impression of the gorgeous Church of St. Denis, where French monarchs were interred. He mentions the Chapel of St. Chapelle, but he gives no mention of the nearby Notre Dame, the pride and joy of Paris whose spire could be seen from just about anywhere in the city. Indeed, Notre Dame and Paris become synonymous. So why does the Rabban omit it from his account? Well, several opinions are given, probably the best of which is the most obvious. Sama was an Nestorian monk. He belonged to the Church of the East, a branch of the faith that had been severed from the West over the identity of Mary. Was she Theotokos, the mother of God, as the West contended, or Christotokos, the mother of Christ, as the East said? The Cathedral of Notre Dame was all about the Virgin Mary. Sama most likely left off mentioning his visit to Notre Dame because of his desire to not end up saying a bunch of critical things about his stay. We'll finish up his time in Paris and get into his trip north to meet the King of England in our next episode as we move to conclude the amazing tale of Raban Sama. <laughs>